0: So to my count, this is going to be the 96th and final sermon in the gospel according to John. We started this sermon series January 6, 2019. We've had a few hiccups along the way, right, over this last year and a half, two years. Um, we had some interruptions for some topical series. Uh, we had a fire, came through our community. Um, we met at one point in a different church that that following Lord's Day. Um, We've had some lockdowns and some stuff of that nature happening, Uh, but here we are in this last and final sermon. It's been a real blessing for me to dig into John. It's been a rich, rich study. Uh, As we've seen John, it seems to me that as he writes, he's really trying to communicate one thing to us. I know it's kind of hard to nail down a book to one topic or one theme, but it seems to me that John is seeking to communicate the immeasurable greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ. His book sort of stands out. His work stands on its own in focusing on the the deity, the godness, or the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. John has been seeking to communicate to us that he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. You may remember... Back in John chapter 12, it's been a bit since we were there, but we saw that this story in the middle of John chapter 12 is a bit of a hinge in the book, where it turns from his public ministry to his passion. And what is that hinge? Well, it was the time when some Greeks, some Gentiles, came to visit Christ. And in the King James, it says there, Sir, we would see Jesus. Right. They asked if they could see the Lord. And Jesus said that when that happened, as soon as that happened, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That he set his face toward the cross at that point. And I told a story of a, of a, from one of the books that I was reading at that time of a minister, I believe it was James Montgomery Boyce, who pastored 10th Street Press in, I think, Mississippi, but he had met in many pulpits, big pulpits, little pulpits, rickety pulpits, fancy pulpits, pulpits with red lights on them that would light up to tell you, you're done. Cut it short, it's over, your time's up. But one of the the ones he remembered what had inscribed in the wood on the pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it was a reminder for the minister that he stood before the congregation, that the congregation came, not for him, they wanted to see Christ. And ever since that sermon, I have this placard here for me as a reminder that you guys have come to hear of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that has been my goal these last number of years as we've anything that is preached, but specifically in this gospel, that we would behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. And that is the goal today. Um, This message is going to be somewhat of an overview of this text and then kind of wrapping up the series as a whole. So John 21, verse 18 is where I'll, I'll begin, and this is God's infallible word. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, that would be written. May God bless the reading of his word. Father in heaven, we do come to you and we come to behold your majesty. We come to see your son, that we might worship him in spirit and truth, that we might love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, that our affections today might be drawn up as we behold Christ afresh today. So we ask your rich blessing upon this time, that you would be the speaker here today, that your spirit would move in such a way through this broken vessel, that you'd be glorified, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving gospel would be the banner that is placarded over this church and over our lives. We commit this time to you, Lord. We ask your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my goal from this text today is is, is a few things. I want to give an exhortation, one, from this passage, um, an exhortation from the book as a whole, and then two takeaways to wrap up this series. So maybe I can say that four points. As we look back into what just took place, basically what's happened is that Jesus just told Peter, how he was going to die, right? John, I believe, looking in hindsight, Peter is dead at this point. John writes later than everybody else. John knows the very way that Peter has died because he has died already. And through the history of the church, from a very early point on, it has been said that, John, that Peter died on a cross, that his arms being stretched out was the death of the cross as he was led away by someone to a place he did not want to go. His arms were stretched out and he was crucified as a martyr for King Jesus. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he did not want to die in the same manner that his Lord. He was unworthy to die the same death that the Lord Jesus Christ died. And John, is, is, is the writer here, is there as well. And after Peter hears about how he's going to die, he sort of looks at John and says, you know what about this guy? What's going to happen to him, right? Jesus says, "That's you. You follow me. Who cares? What's going to happen to him?" Now, there's a little lesson here. This is sort of an aside, but I think it's something to know: is that just because a belief is ancient doesn't make it true, right? John tells us that word spread that John was not going to die until Jesus returned, and 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 John says, "There, that's." Not the case, right? He said, what is it to you if I willed that he would not die? It doesn't mean that he didn't, but that what 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 does it mean to you if if, if I willed that? Um, We we put weight on things that are old, and I think rightfully so, but that does not mean that just because someone in Jesus' day or John's day or the next generation believed a certain doctrine, that it's true because it's ancient. And we see that here. But my one exhortation from this passage today is this. Trust the wise providence of God. Trust the wise providence of God. We throw around the word providence. I like to define it because I think it's a word that that isn't often clear. We have a hospital system in our community named Providence, right? A Roman Catholic hospital. By providence, I mean that God preserves, guides, and governs all that he has created. God is not outside of creation, sort of looking in indifferent to what happens, quite the opposite, but that he governs all things. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, whether it is poverty or prosperity, whether it is sickness or health, whether it is fruitful years or lean years, all things come from his fatherly hand. It's not just the good, right? We tend to think that, I prayed and something good happened and God answered my prayer. And when it didn't go my way, God is yet to prevail. No, all things come from our loving, sovereign father. Trust the wise providence of God. Jesus turns to to Peter and he says, what is it to you if this man dies or lives? What is it to you if I use him how I use him? What is it to you if he has or doesn't have things? You follow me. You trust my wise providence. And we see in this text here that in God's infinite wisdom, Peter would go on to glorify God through martyrdom. He would be crucified to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that same wisdom of God, John would live out his days and die of natural causes, as we understand it, in exile on the island of Patmos. I want to tell the story today and talk about some missionaries. I've spoke of these folks in the past. Some of you may be familiar with the names Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you were alive, I believe, when this, when this happened. We're talking late 50s here, late 50s. But Jim Elliot... Jim Elliott was a young man who began to feel and sense a call to be a missionary. And he said that he felt like the churches here in America were well-fed. They had plenty of gospel light, plenty of pastors, and he wanted to take the gospel where Christ had not been named. And he began to train and he began to be equipped to do that work. And God began to stir that call in him. He met his soon-to-be-wife Elizabeth, and they were separated for a time as he trained and prepared. And he took a call to Ecuador. And he had heard about a tribe there that no one had reached. They were known as sort of savages, violent people that would would attack anyone that came into their community, into their jungle. He took a call to Ecuador to a different tribe, but as he went there with his wife and their young, I think, one-year-old daughter, he had a burden to find the Akka Indians and bring the gospel to them. He began to rally the troops, if you will, and encourage some of the other brothers there to find this tribe. No one knew where they lived. They had one lady who had defected because her family had been killed. She left. She was a native, and she was friends with the missionaries, and she was teaching them the language, some of the greetings and whatnot. So they had an idea, and he found a friend, another missionary that had a plane. And they began to fly this plane over the jungle, looking for huts, just looking for little homes. And one day they found, not that far from where they were stationed, they found, they saw some rooftops. And they began to fly low over this community and yell out the window, greetings in the native tongue of these savages, of these Indians. And after they did that for a time, they began to give gifts, drop toys and candy and various things that they had brought to show they're trying to say we're friendly, right? We're not your enemy. We're not here to harm you. They spotted a beach called, they called Palm Beach, a strip of sand where they could land the plane. So they did that, and they began to yell in the jungle greetings in the native tongue of these, of these men. It wasn't long before they saw a few of the locals come out from the jungle, a young girl, a young boy, and a, a woman. Apparently, as the story goes, the young girl left her parents against their will, and the young boy liked the girl, so he tagged along, and the woman came as sort of a chaperone to watch over them. So they met these folks, and they began to sort of interact with them. They gave them some gifts. They had a model airplane that one of the kids is really interested in, and they took the young boy actually in the plane. He wanted to fly, and they flew him some laps around, and his family saw him up in the plane, and they figured, hey, this is, it's okay, right? So the two young people left, and the older woman stayed that day. And when the young people left, as they traveled back through the jungle, they ran into their parents, and the father was furious that they had left their chaperone. So the kid, to save his own hide, said, we were attacked, that they're dangerous, and we're running for our life. He lied to his family. That was not the case. So the woman, the older woman stayed there that night and she left. I believe the following day was the Lord's day and they had planned to hold a worship service on the beach there. And one of the men at 1230 radioed to his wife and said, we're seeing a large group of natives coming. We're going to greet them. We're hoping to worship the Lord today. I'll call you at 430. That call never came, right? As the men saw these folks coming and they were encouraged and went to greet them one of them was speared through and they began to attack and they began to plead with them. You know, we're friendly. We're not here to harm you. And all of them that day, their blood was spilled and they they gave their life in service to Christ. The world heard about this. It went, it went, it went nationwide. And many mourned and wept for these missionaries. But many scoffed. Many in the church said, what a bunch of fools. What was the point of that? You have five widows here with young children that no longer have a father? Why in the world would they go to a people? Leave them alone. Let them live how they want to live. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim, was asked, why? Why did they do this? These are her words. They went simply because they knew they belonged to God, because he was their creator and their redeemer. They had no choice but to willingly obey him, and that meant obeying his command to take the good news to every nation. Jim Elliot's, A Diary was found, and these words were there, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. After that first meeting that night when the three natives left, these men went to their tents and got on their knees and prayed that Christ would open a door for the gospel into this tribe. And he did, but they didn't know it was gonna come through the shedding of their own blood that the next day they would lose their lives. For the next two years, Elizabeth, Jim's wife, and another woman named Rachel Saint trained and prepared to go back to the very men that killed their husbands to bring the gospel to them. Two years later, they went. Elizabeth went, Rachel and the three-year-old, now daughter of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Why would they do that? Why would they go face the murderers of their husbands and seek to bring the gospel to them? Why didn't they go home and flee and see mission failed? Because they trusted in the providence of God. They trusted that God in his wisdom got glory through the death of those men, and that it was part of his wise plan, and that he would use that event to see this tribe converted to Christ. Elizabeth began to teach them the Bible, and they saw her love. They saw her forgiveness, a radical forgiveness that they did not know in their community, and they gave themselves to the Lord Jesus. Her testimony, trusting God's providence, moved these men to come to Christ. And One of the very first converts was a man that had speared through two of the missionaries on that day. Are we trusting in the providence of God? This is a sermon for me, so I'm not. It's not one of these. (laughs) Are we trusting him with the things that he brings into our lives? Are we trusting our Lord with the losses and crosses that he asks us to bear? Some of you today look back in your life warmly, fondly, with great memories you've lived a full life family around you at every holiday you look back at just great years of being loved it wasn't perfect but overall you would say you've had a rich full life filled with joy others here today have lived a life a bit different it be filled with tears and bitterness and pain and loneliness and unrest And yet God was at work in the midst of both. And God brings glory to himself and forms Christ in his lambs through the ups and the downs of life. Peter was crucified. And John died of natural causes. And Jesus was no less in charge of either one of those events. And no less good, regardless of what those men faced. Maybe today as you sit here in your chair, you are looking to God today to provide something. You're looking for our Lord to answer a prayer. You've been pleading with him to respond in faith. Maybe you've asked him, you're asking for him right now to heal something, someone. You're asking him to fix a situation or to change something that's taken place. What if he already has? What if he's already answered that prayer? What if the season that you're walking through today is his good design for you in this season of your life? Maybe this fiery trial is his means to form and to mold you and to get glory through you as you remain steadfastly devoted to him through it all. Maybe this season of your life is his good plan to keep you on your knees in reliance upon him, seeking his face daily. Maybe it's through your sacrifice, through your obedience, through your loneliness, through your pain that Christ is using to point others to the hope of the gospel through you. In his infinite wisdom, he he had ordained to get glory through Peter by dying on a Roman How might we today grow in trusting the providence of God, trusting the things that come our way, trusting the losses and crosses that he asks us to bear? As we press on in our passage, look with me down in verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did or every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, John might be using a small measure of hyperbole, right? Exaggerating to make a point. But I think the point is made. We only have a small portion out of all that the Lord Jesus Christ did. We believe he he ministered for about three, three and a half years. We say conservatively, a thousand days. We've looked at much of what Christ has done in the Gospel of John, but we certainly don't have a thousand days worth of ministry, day in, day out, preaching, teaching, healing, raising the dead. The second point is this, and this is really an exhortation from the entire book. Rejoice in the wonderful works of Christ. Rejoice in the wonderful works of Christ. I like the little note the ESV study Bible has here to those words that, that the books in the world cannot contain all that he has done. It said he speaks here of the limitless magnitude of all that Jesus accomplished for mankind's salvation the limitless magnitude as we have studied this book we have beheld really an onslaught of glory overwhelming evidence of the godness the transcendent majesty of the god man the lord jesus in reflecting on these truths really ought to move the affections should it not as we behold glory in the face of jesus christ it gives us reason to rejoice and the wonderful works of the Lord Jesus. So I want to do that for a moment. I want to rejoice in a few of the wonderful works of God that we've seen in Christ in this book. Let me just say really quick, there is such a danger, I believe at least, for Christians, any, any all Christians, that go to church, read the Bible, study the Word. There's a real danger for us that theological ideas and the great rich doctrines of the faith can become common over time. They just sort of become normal. We've heard them a thousand times. We've heard the gospel. We've heard about Jesus and it just becomes sort of mundane, loses the wow factor that should be there every time we open up the word. So I want to just sort of stir the affections a bit and help us to think about some of the glorious things that Christ has done that we've beheld in this gospel. Turn, if you would, to the very first chapter. And I'm going to restrain myself from not reading the whole prologue because it's marvelous. <laughs> it's hard not to. But John chapter 1, in verse 14, the wonderful works of Christ, firstly, in the incarnation. The incarnation. John 1, verse 14. The Word, the Logos, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hmm. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God, the eternal Elohim, God Almighty, El Shaddai, took on flesh, became a man. And did you catch that word there? He said dwelt. He said dwelt. But the Greek word is the same Greek word that's used in the greek translation of the old testament for the word tabernacle you remember god instructed moses to build a tent a tent of meeting called the tabernacle the tabernacle was made and later on solomon builds the first temple a concrete with stones building but what was the purpose of both of those things it was the meeting place for god and men it was the place that man was to draw near a faithful jew wherever he lived Three times a year was called to make a pilgrimage, get on his donkey, strap on his sandals, and walk, however many days it took, back to Jerusalem to draw near to God by drawing near to the temple. The temple was the place where atonement for sin was made. The temple was the place where offerings were given to God. The temple was the place where God's presence manifested itself most supremely on the earth. And John tells us that God has tabernacled among his people, that God as a man has dwelt among his people. No longer do we need to go to a building made with hands out of stones, but now man can draw near to God through Christ. The eternal God took on flesh, added a human nature to himself, so that he is now the God-man, eternally God and eternally man, fully man and fully God, not commingled natures, but two distinct natures, divine and human. If you like fancy words, we call that the hypostatic union. The eternal God took on flesh and walked among men. People, so that you could stand and shake his hand and talk to God face to face. We ought to marvel at that church. We ought to be in awe of that reality that people saw God, Almighty God, walking on this earth. Secondly, just a a bit over, same chapter, verse 29, we have this man, John the Baptist. And he is standing at the bank of the Jordan River. He is preaching repentance from sins. He is making straight paths for the preparation of God's Messiah. And as John is there, he looks and he sees. And he says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does he see? He does not see a lamb tied up ready to be sacrificed. He does not see a priest about to bring a sacrifice before the altar. He sees a man. He sees a normal looking man like you and I walk over that hill and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 22 here. When Abraham took the son of the promise, Isaac, up on that mountain. God told him to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise that he had waited decades for. And you remember what what Abraham tells his servants? You stay here. The boy and I are going to go up and worship, and we'll be back in three days. And we have the young man, Isaac, astute man, looks around. Father, I see the fire. I see the knife. I see the wood, where's the sacrifice? And I love Abraham's line, God will provide for himself, the lamb. God will provide for himself. And Abraham, in obedience to God the Father, raises that knife over his beloved son, and God says, stop. And he provides the sacrifice in the thicket. There is a ram. Isaac is spared. The, the ram is slain as a substitute. And beloved, Jesus Christ has come as that sacrificial lamb. It is you and I that ought to be under the very knife of God. But Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, has come as a man and also as that substitute to take away the sin of the world. Rejoice in the wonderful works of the Lord Jesus. Number three, if you turn with me to chapter five. Chapter five. Jesus interacting with the Pharisees as he would. Let me, let me start in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, John 5, 37, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The goal of the entire Old Testament and the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. The reformers called this scopus scriptura. The end, the goal, the target, the bullseye of the scripture is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Notice, he rebukes religious people in his day, the scholars, the Bible people in his day because they did not see him in the text. And he said, you don't have life because you have not found me in the scripture. Now, church, there's a, there's a, a warning there. If we read the Bible for a, a moral code that we should live by, if we read the Bible to get some history about things that took place in the Middle East, if we read the Bible just to have some sort of religion that we are to follow, and we fail to see and worship and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have not found eternal life. We've missed the whole point of the Scriptures. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and reveals to them that the entire Old Testament anticipated Foreshadowed and prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. I ask you, church, do you read your Bible in this way? Do you read the book of Zephaniah expecting to see the Lord Jesus? Do you read the book of 2 Chronicles and all the begots and all the numbers expecting to see the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you read the book of Genesis and the creation account? looking for and expecting to see Jesus, the second person of the Trinity there, because God has not changed. All of the Bible, Jesus says, points to me. Number four, John 6, verse 48. John 6, verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As we rejoice in and behold the wonderful works of our Lord, look with me. In verse 48, John 6, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Now let me just stop there for a minute. If you know the Exodus, you know that God's people were in the wilderness. They were starving. They were grumbling and complaining. They're, they're a lot like us, or we are a lot like them. And God provided supernatural bread from heaven it looked like frost on the ground dew in the morning it was a miraculous bread given from god the father they prayed they nagged maybe for food and god provided miraculous supernatural bread from heaven and they ate and their bellies were full and they died it only helped the flesh it did nothing for their soul But Jesus says in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I, he says, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Is my flesh. Jesus, beloved, has come offering himself to feed and to fuel hungry, impoverished souls. And he comes offering not temporary manna from heaven, not bread that if you got too much and stored it up for two days, it would rot and be filled with worms. But he comes offering himself. He comes offering his own flesh. Now, we don't want to take this text too far as the Catholics do, they believe this speaks of communion. This is why one of the reasons why they believe that the body the bread is is Christ and the blood is his blood. Jesus is not even speaking of communion here. What he's saying is you must receive me within yourself. You must partake of me as if I am the only sustenance that your soul demands and craves. You must embrace me with heart, soul, mind, strength. You must love me with all that you are. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Understanding and acknowledging that nothing else will satisfy your weary soul. Everything else is a temporary solution. I want to ask you today, friend, have you partaken of Christ in this manner? Have you eaten his flesh and drank his blood? Not have you read the Bible, None of you claim to be a Christian, but have you received Jesus in this way? Do you recognize that His manna from heaven Himself is the only thing that will satisfy the eternal void in your soul? That you will worship something. Let it be the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one that is worthy of worship. Partake of Him today. Receive Him for yourself today as the only Savior. Rejoice in the wonderful works of Christ. Lastly, two takeaways. Two takeaways from this book. There's a lot that we could talk about. I've narrowed it down to two. The first one is this. God's word is inexhaustible. God's word is inexhaustible. What a wealth of riches we have in the Bible. I mean, I really believe that we could come back next week and we could go back to John 1 and we could do this thing over and we would be richly blessed, right? I mean, I've just began to to mind just getting off the topsoil, right? And really the riches of who Christ is and what he's done for sinners. We have such a rich treasure in the word. Do not let that treasure, beloved, sit on the shelf and collect dust. Read broadly, read narrowly, read books at a time, chew on a verse or a word for an hour, Read the word and soak up the word. Eat of the word. Don't let lesser things take you from the inexhaustible word of God. We will mind the depths of the scriptures for the rest of our lives and we will only have begun to understand the glories of our God. Secondly and lastly or fourthly, God's promises are sure. God's promises are sure. We live in a time, as you know, I don't have to tell you this, of mass information, right? Unprecedented time in human history where we are receiving stuff, information, constantly. The phone buzzes, it vibrates. Maybe it's happened to you five or six times And she sat here in the church. Another news article, another thing, another tweet, another whatever. Constantly we're being bombarded with information, but the problem is, Hardly any of that, if any of it, is completely true and trustworthy. right? And we've grown more and more in this information age, accustomed to reading between the lines, to reading with discernment. What's the motive here? What's the purpose? Who's writing this? What are they actually trying to communicate? What truth are they leaving out? That's how we view the world, or probably should. But the Word of God, the promises of Christ are yea and amen, right, in Jesus. The promises of God are certain and sure and infallible and sufficient. His truth is the elixir that we need in a time of disinformation and uncertainty. So as I wrap up this message, I want to look at some of the promises of God in the gospel according to John. There's more than I have here, but I want to look at some that I think are Encouraging. And let me just say, if you've, if, if you've never studied God's promises, it's a very edifying, blessed study to partake of because if you're in Christ, those promises are sure for you. right? You can take His word to the bank if you've entrusted your soul to Him. Some of the promises we've seen, we saw in that famous verse, chapter 3, verse 16, and whoever believes in Him not perish but have eternal life I mean we can stop there right if you've believed in Christ with saving faith then you will not perish but you have you've apprehended beloved eternal life he promises in the negative too that whoever believes in him is not condemned there is no condemnation for your sin if you are in Christ Jesus he promises that whoever drinks of the water that he gives will never be thirsty again. And that water that he gives will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We come to Jesus impoverished, needy, bankrupt of soul, poor in spirit. And he promises that if we drink of what he offers, if we partake of the gospel that he has offered Freely to sinners, that we will never thirst again, that our souls will be quenched for eternity. He promises in our coming that the dead shall hear the voice of God and live, the voice of the Son of God. And, and I see twofold prophecy there, beloved. If you're here today in Christ, you were dead and you've heard the voice of the Son of God and you are now alive. Amen. According to Ephesians 2 and elsewhere, we were walking dead men. You know, zombies, kind of popular today, that's who who we were, right? Walking spiritually dead men, but we heard the voice of the Son of God, and hallelujah, we're alive in Christ. But there's a second fulfillment of that. That if the Lord should tarry, and you find yourself passing away before that, and buried in the earth, there is a day coming when your corpse will hear the voice of the Son of God and raise to new life, doesn't matter if you became fish food or whatever it is, the Lord God will call you out from the earth to a glorified, restored body. He promises that all that come to Him He will in no wise cast out. Beloved, it doesn't matter if it's the first time coming in faith or if it's the thousandth time Picking our weary head up, he does not cast out his saints. He does not cast out any that come to him humbly and repentant. He promises that he loses none of all that the Father gives him. Thank you, Lord, indeed. You cannot fall away unto unbelief. The Lord will preserve you. Dear Christian, it is not the great strength of our own faith but it is the great strength of our God, his mighty outstretched hand that keeps us. He promises that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him no longer walks in darkness. Praise God, we live in a world that is filled with darkness. Some of you have testimonies that you lived in utter darkness and hallelujah to see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to no longer walk in a path of Wickedness, but to allow the sins of our heart be exposed and laid bare before a God that is merciful and kind to us. He promises that His truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed with certainty. Right? The lies of this world, the, the, the sin of our own heart enslaves us, but when we come to Christ, believe and receive His truth, the Son breaks the shackles and sets His saints free. He promises that his sheep will hear his voice. For me, this is great encouragement for the lost people in my life that Christ's sheep will respond to the call of their shepherd. That if they are his, there will be a day when his voice will be heard and they will flee from the flock of wickedness and they will come to the flock of their good shepherd. He promises, beloved, that no one can pluck his sheep out of his hand there is no enemy in this world that can take you from the Lord Jesus Christ he's going to nip at your heels and every once in a while he's going to draw some blood but he cannot pluck you out of the hands of your good shepherd because his rod and his staff go before you to comfort and to protect you he promises that he goes to prepare a place for that where he is praise be to God we will one day be with him He promises peace unlike this world is able to give. You can't find it in a pill, in a bottle, in a vacation, in a lottery ticket. Only Jesus Christ offers eternal peace for the soul. He promises that you did not choose him, but he chose you to bring much fruit. He called you and he is the one bearing fruit in your life. He promises, beloved, that your sorrow will be turned to joy. He promises, lastly, that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. Our Lord has given us a wealth of hope and assurance and reason to have great confidence in the mighty hand of our good God. May we receive and believe the words of this book. May we take them to heart, meditate on the truth, and may they be the things that we surely believe. Amen.